Welcome to Life List, a birding podcast. Hello, hello. Welcome, welcome, everybody. We are back. I'm George Armistead with Alvaro Jaramillo. Welcome, everybody, to a, another episode of Life List, a birding podcast. What's going on, my friend? Hey, uh, doing really well. I'm in Morro Bay, uh, which is, you know, not the same bay that I'm usually at. And so in California, so it's, uh, yeah, if there's, uh, I'm on really like weak hotel internet here. So hopefully this comes through. Okay, George. Yeah. Hear me. Yeah. No, we hear you loud and clear, loud and clear. You sound good down. Uh, it's a beautiful part of the world you're in there, Morro Bay. And, uh, I understand you had a little boat trip there yesterday. Yeah, we had a boat trip, and it's it's you know the mornings here right now are are super foggy, so like it, it's not you know come in the afternoon when there's sun if you if you want to visit and see the beauty of this place because in the morning you can't see a thing. You know, it's, it's sort of like a, um, coated in in fog, but par- partially that's because the ocean's so cold and good. You know, lots of stuff out there, so it's uh, for birding. Um, it's it's a good sign when it's foggy, uh, believe it or not, you know, in terms of the ocean. Cold water, got lots of nutrients and lots of critters for the birds. Uh, yeah, lots of critters. Um, yeah, what have you been up to? Gosh, what have I been up to? I have been, I've been working on Hillstar stuff a lot, really mostly been home. It's been a heat wave here, as mentioned. This is kind of what I call the off season in terms of birding around here. Um, right. Haven't been doing much, frankly, have been getting into, uh, the yard a bit, uh, trying to keep my plants happy in this crazy heat wave we had. It feels like it's been, you know, 90 plus degrees every day and, you know, plenty of hum- humidity and all that. And, uh, and so, yeah, uh, Kristen and I have been kind of moving some plants around, got, uh, a couple viburnum, arrowhead viburnum that we we moved around, and I moved one right outside my office window just huh. a couple of days ago, kind of hoping it would it would shelter us from the sun a little bit. And uh, once it gets bigger, it's little right now. And I looked out there, and there was a robin, American robin, feeding a recently fledged fledgling. And I was like, look yeah. at that! That thing is already doing its job. Boom. Uh, and on top of that, I had a new mammal for the yard, had the groundhog. Uh, yeah, it was, it went, I, I was looking out my, my, again, the office window, saw this thing go trundling across the yard. And I was like, my God, look at that groundhog, you know, woodchuck. I, you woodchuck. know, yeah, I've been seeing them like they're, they're around here, but never see one in the yard, actually anywhere really right in the neighborhood here. And I thought, geez, you know, um, I love those things like fat furry East, rodents, you know, Eastern marmot. Yeah, exactly. It's a marmot. A lot of people don't realize that. Um, yeah. It's like a lowland marmot. marmot. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Wonderfully fat. You know, you just kind of want to, want to, want to poke them uh, affectionately. Um, right. You know, Hug yeah, they look very cute and like they'd be good snugglers. But uh, <laughs> th- this one, I did want to kind of get out of the yard. Cause I was like, gosh, I don't, you know, I've already got the skunk living under, under the back porch there. Last thing that we need is a groundhog digging around. So I let the dog out thinking he'll chase it out of the yard. The dog went running right past the groundhog and just grabbed his Frisbee and came back to me looking happy and dopey. Um, Smart dog. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, Philly, Philly groundhog, they'll cut you. <laughs> it's true. They will. They will. They, it is definitely, it's that kind of town and it's these kind of groundhogs that we got around here. So Yeah. Your dad was excited because people probably know already your dad loves squirrels and these things are kind of, kind of weird squirrels in a sense. Oh yeah. No, he, he loves them. I forget what he's got several different names for woodchucks that are purely names that he has constructed himself. And of course, the very first <laughs> thing I did was take a phone photo and be like, look, we got a new neighbor here, pops. And uh, yeah, he was duly impressed. So that was good. You, you know, I don't, I don't know why this, um, I remember when I was learning bird sounds in, in Toronto, you know, which is also groundhog country. And um, it, I, I uh, once thought I was hearing 
a uh, Acadian flycatcher. But it was coming from this place that didn't make any sense. And it was a groundhog doing this yeah. funny kind of two-note whistle. Yeah, sort of yeah. like a hiccup whistle, right? Yeah. 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 And I mean, I haven't heard that for a long time. I don't even know if if in, in modern, my modern sort of knowledge of sounds, if I would even have put those two things together as sounding similar. But I remember at the time, I was like, is that an Acadian flycatcher? You know, and... Um, <laughs> <laughs> and I learned that, you know, groundhogs do this kind of whistly thing, but um, kind of, a pss, you know, kind of, two yeah. note, you know, yeah. It anyway. is sort of an explosive, like flycatcher, like call. Yeah. And, and I'm sure, you know, Al, but, and I'm sure lots of our listeners know as well, but a lot of people don't realize that they can really get up high, uh, the groundhogs, despite the name, the groundhog. Right, you know, and they burrow around, burrow under people's houses. That's the biggest problem around here is they can really mess up uh, housing. Um, but they they can get up high in trees, and I've I've seen them thirty, forty feet up. Sometimes taking a nap up there, you know. Wow, yeah, I, that that is. I mean, I remember seeing that a, a couple of times, but it always struck me as odd. Like how how they how do they do that? Because these are not slim animals, you know what I'm no, saying? It's true. They're, yeah, they're, they're sort of like, uh, you know, yeah. uh, we say that with fondness, you know, with fondness, you know. Yeah. And you think of like this athletic, slim animal is going to be able to do that, but then you know, I guess you know, porcupines, bears, and you know, a lot of uh, you know, rotund mammals climb. <laughs> <laughs> it's true, it, yeah. but you know, hats off to them because you know that's. It just shows you, you know, don't ever say you can't do something. That's right. <laughs> if a groundhog can climb 30, 40 feet up in a tree, God knows what you might be capable of. Right. You And obviously don't try to climb trees, but, you know, do something else. Right. Yeah. <laughs> just put your mind to it like a groundhog. Have it be your inspiration animal. <laughs> yeah. Maybe, maybe try some parkour instead or something, you know. Right. Right, you know, or uh, <laughs> yeah, it's it's so it's pretty. They're they're cool animals. I actually was, <clears throat> I ha- I've been kind of a whirlwind tour of California. I was with the family the other day in Lake Tahoe, uh, which I always want to say, you know, it's Tahoe. You know, like it <laughs> it sounds like almost like <laughs> Hawaiian to me. Like mm-hmm. it's you know Mount Tahoe or something. Tahoe, you know? yeah. Tahoe, Tahoe, but I don't know, you know, it's it's obviously, it's got to be a, you know, um, a native American word or something. I don't know the background, Um, but uh, so I don't want to make fun of it, but it just in my mind, it sounds Hawaiian. Um, And we were looking at squirrels. I mean, there's some kind of cool Western you know, gray squirrels up there and there were some chipmunks that I couldn't quite, they haven't sort of drilled down to figure out which one it was because there's so many chipmunks in the, uh, in the mountains, you know, especially when you get farther North, you know, when we were in, remember Oregon, we saw all these crazy chipmunks and oh yeah, e- Easterners don't realize like there's like oh, chipmunks are sort of the, the impidnax flycatchers of the, <laughs> of the squirrel world, you know, cause there's so many of them in the West and, you're looking at habitats and elevations and, and uh, I think we even thought about calls at one point might be able to sort them out. Yes. But uh, there you go. You know, yeah. I think we, I think I, we yeah, mentioned we, that before in the past here on this. Yes, exactly. I, and I remember we first discussed, I posted that picture of uh, you, me and Chris Wood at the Snowbird uh, ABA convention some years ago that Mike Bowen graciously shared with us from, uh, Mike in Maryland, uh, and um, and I remember we discussed that when you you mentioned the you went to ground squirrels, um, yeah, and uh, and that we d- we talked about their their uh, vocalizations. By the way, Alvaro Tahoe is comes from the mispronunciation of the I don't know if I'm pronouncing this cor- correctly Washoe Native American name, which is W A S H O E, and it means uh-huh. edge of the lake. Edge of the huh. lake. So, bit of trivia and etymology there for folks that are there. You go that are interested in that kind of thing. Um, you know, 
Yeah. I, I always thought, you know, when, when we were snowbird and we saw those uh, ground squirrels, that that, you know, U-I-N-T-A, right, which is sort of a, a region or, a, you know, sort of a, you know, the Uinta, or it it's sort of like um, when you say Uinta ground squirrels, you know, <laughs> you're sort of like you're asking a question and be sort of like, yeah. hey, you into ground squirrels? No, not really. No, I'm I'm pointing it out. There's you into ground squirrels right there. Oh, what? <laughs> it's, a, it's such a weird word. It is. You yeah. There's a good beer coming out of there, by the way. You into brewing. Nice. Note to self out there. Yeah, duly noted. Nice. Well, you know, since the last time we chatted, um. I feel like there's been a lot of news, Alvaro. Whew. A lot of news, you know, in in the in the natural history world. Um and I think you know, primary among these has been another round of Ivory Build Woodpecker shenanigans. Um, here we go. Yeah, here we go again. Yep. Um and again, some Fresh imagery that is less than inspiring, um, giving cause for um, more conversation than is probably deserved, uh, in my opinion, and I think in yours as well. Yeah, you know, when we started doing this podcast and, you know, we didn't know anything about podcasts and that there's like, you know, there's a chart, you know, weekly chart and we started ranking in the nature and I started looking in there and it's like, okay, who else is in the nature thing? And like <laughs> half of the top 10 are like, I saw Bigfoot or, you know, it's amazing. zoology and you know, all this, all this stuff that basically to me, I was like, you know what? You should bump those off nature. Cause they're not really nature. I, I feel like, um, you know, I don't want to, I, I don't want to, f- you know, feel like we're pandering to the cryptozoology folks, you know, by talking about the ivory belt all the time. Definitely. But it, it feels like that. <laughs> it's just like we're, it's like the big Bigfoot thing. Um, if, if it really exists, get the really great photo where we all go, Oh my God, there it is, you know, and yeah, not, not this uh, imagery that's, worked and you know and then there's lines of travel and all of this sort of you know stuff around it that makes it look like you know there's magic bullet theories yeah yeah Yeah. i don't know i i'm 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 thinking yeah why why do we, we and we all fall for it we all start talking about it yeah but really it isn't any more than than um Gosh, I mean, I'm I'm really being negative today. I gotta, I gotta, <laughs> I gotta like really sort of tone myself down here. But there is a frustration from people who truly are interested in this topic. Like, yeah, you know, there would be nothing more amazing than having this be true, and to have this sort of weak, uh, to in my mind, and I think in your mind too, info coming out. That's really worked, you know, like where you have to, everything has to be explained to you, like what you're seeing here and why this is important. The the info should be like no explanation needed. That's what we need, where you just see it and go, oh boy. Yeah. And, uh, I mean, really, the this most recent story is not a story. Right. It's basically like the headline should be, guess what, everybody? Same thing happens all over again, all over again. Right. (laughs) You know, like bad photo of what is either a wood duck or some leucistic bird that is unidentifiable is being purported to be an ivory billed woodpecker. Right. Yeah. And this, this is a video, but still videos tricky, you know, because to really see detail, you got to like stop it and and look at yeah, and then you sort of don't know how many pixels you're looking at here. And um, again, it just should be no explanation needed. Yeah, no, it was so 
It was kind of a non-story yeah. given given legs again, and perhaps we should not give it any more legs than it's already been given because uh, yeah. it is sort of a shame. Um, kind of along the same lines, um, although I think a lot less nefarious in my view. Nefarious. Um, nice. Yeah. Yeah, and maybe that's overstating things a little bit even with the ivory build with Pecker, but a lot less uh what's the word i it's, this this new this news came out yesterday that the monarch butterfly is now being listed as endangered by the IU, iucn uh it's uh, the iucn red list now has it as an endangered species um and we've all been hearing about um massive declines yeah on the uh on the wintering grounds and I, I saw this news, I think like most people, and I was like, oh man, like this is really deeply, deeply troubling. Um, and like, you know, I still see a lot of monarchs around here in the, in the meadow near our house here. There's a lot of milkweed and we see monarchs sailing around. I see them in the yard. Sometimes we planted some milkweed, hoping to, hoping to help them out a little bit. And, um, but you keep hearing about these big declines. And, you know, at some of the migration points, the numbers are down. And they, they state here in this IUCN, this article, this press release by the IUCN, that an estimated 99.9% um, they've declined um, by as much as that, uh, as many as 10 million, um, from as many as 10 million to down to under 2,000 between the 1980s and 2021 uh and that is most that's the western population okay out out your way um the larger eastern population though has also shrunk they say by 84 percent from 1996 until 2014 now this would sound real bad and it does and i was like man like this sounds like a bona fide disaster like these things will disappear very soon um you know Maybe like in our lifetime, um, many of our lifetime, like if, if it goes on like this. Uh, and then I was contacted. I posted about this. I was contacted by a friend of mine, Andy Davis, down in Georgia. And he is a monarch uh, biologist. He studies monarchs. Huh. And you got, you um, got cool friends. <laughs> and, you know, I, Andy and I worked together at Cape Charles, Virginia, Cape Topeka years ago. Um, but we've kept in touch, especially through social media. And he mentioned, he was like, look, you know, all due respect, I think the IUCN um, maybe did, didn't do so great on this one. Um, and we can, I, I tweeted out the link of this article and, and put it out on Facebook. People can see it there. We can include it in the show notes too. It's a, it, he's, he's got a blog that he runs uh, called monarchscience.org. And, uh, and him and his colleagues have published um, about monarchs. And one of the things they have figured out is that they contend that North American monarch populations are actually slightly increasing. Huh. And, and he says, you know, trying to, trying to cut through the, the grease here and maybe and maybe cutting some corners that I shouldn't, maybe the long and short of it would be that they aren't migrating as much. And so some of these migration counts are indeed seeing fewer of them. And indeed, uh, and I never, the neonics, as they call them, the, those pesticides do affect them negatively, although not nearly as negatively as they affect many, many other things. Those neonic pesti uh, insecticides, people we should really all be storming yeah, the sounds capital. Sounds like a sports team, the Neonics. And they are just an abomination for what they are doing. <laughs> Apparently they, they affect like pretty much every endangered species incredibly adversely. They're a terrible, <laughs> terrible thing. But, um, but the, those do affect monarchs and they are, they are, they are indeed engaged in a, in a steep decline on their wintering grounds. But overall they say climate change Warming temperatures actually seem to have benefited them within North America and that they're not right. migrating as much and that their numbers 
have actually been increasing slightly overall in North America. There are there it's a little patchy, you know, how this works. Some places they're increasing more, some places there are declines. Um, but overall in North America, they are um they contend increasing. So um yeah, interesting. Brings up a few things. Like as you're talking, I, I got a, like three things in my head, I think. You know, they'll they'll probably like end up being just one thing in the end, but <laughs> locally california west uh, the west coast migration of monarchs it, people were really freaking out a couple two years ago three years ago like you know there's no monarch nothing they're the wintering areas um coastal sites in california some of them are disappeared and then this last winter boom they're back you know and they they re-established in places that they were gone from, like their their population increased like many fold in one year. So then you start thinking, oh, okay, so we have these long-term declines, but the fact that they can pop right back up in one year to to these, you know, near normal populations is interesting. I you know, um I'm not sure what it was or but I mean they were wintering right around my in my neighborhood. Uh, and I hadn't seen that for years, actually. Um, yeah. So, so it it does suggest that your friend's info is correct in that you know not only might they be not migrating as much, but perhaps there's also a a lot more um, resilience in the system. You know that that they can pop right up uh, when the right conditions are there. Um, but. Um, it's um, it's also you know the the IUCN what is it what International Union Conservation is, what is it I uh, Nature mm. right they they're yeah Nature they're, Con- uh, International Union for Conservation of Nature yeah their their listing doesn't have political teeth within North America until you like bring things across international borders um, right so what. You know, so they're different from the the U.S. or Canadian, you know, um, endangered list. And I wonder if there's something else to it. I wonder if people have been, I know, transporting monarchs or something. Like in in, a, in an odd way, like what what is this for, right? Like uh, often, you know, it's more like parrots and things that people used to like extract from the wild and they were super rare, you know, macaws and, and the IUCN really had this, this um, list of like, these are total no, no species, but to put something on there, um, I'm, I'm wondering why um, and B, they seem to have gotten it incorrect, which happens sometimes, you know, yes. to the best yeah. of us. <laughs> yeah. And if you only look at part of the picture, um, you know, you may think you're getting, more than you really are. Uh, and I think that happens to all of us. Um, and, um, it's, if you're only looking at migration counts and if you're only looking at and making assumptions about them and you're looking at wintering grounds where they are in decline, um, you might miss some stuff. And they do say too, that they think that kind of the, the farming practices we see commonly in the Midwest, mid Atlantic, um, has um, affected monarchs negatively, um, and uh, but that they are you know, and the neonics is you know not not just the neonics, but the also the the um, farming practices like you know places where there used to be milkweed, there is not anymore. Um, right, and um, but you know there is a pretty good movement of people planting milkweed. And maybe that that is actually helping, starting to have a significant impact. Um, we'll see, I guess. Yeah, yeah. But, I mean, um, yeah. We, I, I do think though that milkweed as sort of a roadside plant is still pretty darn common. Yes. When I was in Canada, yes, um, last you know last year, and um, in in Ontario, I, and I, I was thinking like. There's, you know, one part of my brain was like, people are planting this in their backyards and it's cool because it's a native plant, but 
man, you know, that's a drop in the bucket compared to how much of this plant there is out in the wild, you know. It's true, you know. I I was thinking the same thing. We Actually, Kristen and I, I mentioned to you uh, before we started recording here, Kristen and I did a little bit of a pub crawl the other night. And, and, uh, yeah, the next morning we were a little worse for the wear, I might add. But the the night while we were out for, uh, you know, we did dinner out and then we did a, a little bit of a stroll actually along one of Philly's busiest, most traversed, um, roads. And I noticed several patches, of you know, fairly extensive patches of milkweed all along it. And I was like, look at this. Yeah. Like, and I really don't think anybody planted those. Um, right. Like I, I could be wrong, but I, it, it looked like it was just growing, you know? And I was like, man, look at that. That's great. You know, milkweed just going off there. You, you know, um, kind of a story that I think is pretty neat is that these, these butterflies, just like birds, um, can be vagrants, you know, because it's it's such a long distance migrant, and you get caught up in the wrong wind, you know, and they they can get shot out to almost anywhere. And apparently, they were historically sort of vagrants to Hawaii all the time, or not all the time, but they'd show up, and even to Europe. But in Hawaii, people started planting like milkweeds, like the butterfly weed, just as a because it's a cool looking plant in gardens. Yeah, and then the the monarchs actually got there and like, hey. We can breed. And <laughs> so there, there's a, a population now in Hawaii of monarchs that wasn't introduced. It was just allowed to survive. Yeah. Yeah. Because the plant was introduced that wasn't there wow. before that they they needed. And it may have happened too in Spain. I mean, I want to say that like southern Spain has now like a population of, of uh, monarchs. But, you know, you'd have to check on that. Um, so. I think that's kind of cool. It's so different from a bird, you know, like you, you, you can't, you know, just sort of set up a plant and go, Hey, you know, um, all these bramblings will hang out if we just plant the right thing in my backyard kind of, but, but with the, the butterflies actually, it, it worked. It works. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it was unintentional, but, um, and, um, the other thing I mean that popped up in my head is, um, Green darners, you know those the big huge dragonflies, right? Yeah. With the blue, the males have the blue kind of thorax, and the is it the other way? Green thorax and blue tails. I forget. I think you're right the first time, but I'm not 100 percent sure. It, they have like two, you know, uh, the you know they're unlike a butterfly because they're aquatic as larvae, um, and then they pop out, you know, middle of summer, late summer, but they're migratory. Except there's two different in, in any one lake, I guess in at least in, in southern Canada, you have these ones that pop out early in the season that breed and then they winter as larvae in the lake. And then the ones that pop out late in the season migrate south, overwinter in the south and 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 migrate north in the spring and summer. So yet there's two actual completely different populations within one area one is migratory and one's non-migratory which i think is gets at your friend's point that maybe some of these things are are not migrating as much like there's a there's a, a shift that can happen where you can get them just overwintering maybe in some in some way as eggs or whatever you know? yeah cool. yeah huh. we talk a lot about migrant birds but there's some pretty amazing um migrant insects as well globe skimmer and yeah. Wandering glider and green darners. Yeah, that's yeah, what some of these things. Moths, you know, that come in from Mexico. Corn, what are they called? Corn something moths. You know, when, and I, the thing I always remember is you had a black witch once up in Toronto, right? Didn't you find one up there? Actually, it was, um, I've had one in California in my, you know, oh, when wow. I was on tour, I came back and there's this, this is huge tropical big huge moth in my garage and I'm I, I it was dead and I'm like you know and, and I was like hey cat what what what's going on where's this from and he's like oh yeah that disgusting thing was here and <laughs> she's like scared of bugs oh yeah and it's like oh but it, it died eventually I'm like that's a really cool find you know and she was like I don't know get rid of it <laughs> so I, I kept it as a specimen but but in Toronto we, we had to do when we were like students, entomology class, we had to c- collect like insects, you know, a few families and learn how to identify them and all that. And this, I remember this 
you know, another person in the class brought this black witch and, and, and I'm like, Oh my God, like, where'd you find that? And he's like, Oh, it was, you know, right front door, big, huge moth thing. So I grabbed it for the collection. I'm like, do you know what this is, my man? You know, like, this is a real cool thing. You know, I was like, and then, then he's like, you know, so I'm talking to this, you think that some biology student would be interested. And he's like, he's just like, okay, so what is it? What, what should I put for my collection? Like what, what, what's the name? I was like, you're like, you're not getting this. This thing probably came from Jamaica or something. Yeah. 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 He, He didn't, he didn't care at all. He was, you know, (laughs) <laughs> oh wow. boy well but, um, yeah those are those are awesome and yeah i mean monarchs making news i rebuild woodpeckers making news and al you shared an article recently that i thought was really interesting um it was titled it was first of all you pointed out to me that it was by someone named dr eric wing yeah, uh, appropriately enough, and it's called study. Wing. Study uh, examines memory in bird watchers. Finds having expert knowledge helps us memorize new information, um, which I think would come as no surprise to our our uh, friends and listeners. Uh, but uh, was interesting to sort of have that validated in in uh, in a study. Yeah, no, Doctor Doctor Wing. Um, <laughs> I don't know. It's like, uh, it's, uh, it's, it's kind of a good name for somebody who's, who's doing anything to do with birders. But, yeah. you know, th- there were a couple of things I thought were interesting in this. And one of them is like, he's, uh, based in, in Toronto where I grew up and he, uh, Dr. Wing, and I think it's, it is a, he, yeah, Eric, Eric Wing, um, Eric Wing, yeah went to the Toronto Ornithological Club and the Toronto Field Naturalist to go and study these people. I was a member of both of those organizations. Uh, in fact, you know, the TOC, Toronto Ornithological Club, was one of these old school, probably like the DVOC. Used to be, yeah. Used to be where you you, you were like... You had to be uh, accepted. You had to be voted in. Yeah. Yeah, like yeah. Accepted in. Yeah. Um, you know, and if people... Yeah, people talk about gate gatekeeping today. You should have seen it back in the day. It's yeah. really different. But yeah, at one point I was the only teenage member of that group. And uh great club. I actually learned a lot. Amazing folks. Um uh I'm so glad that they they voted me in. Otherwise, I would not be talking to you right now. <laughs> it but uh, to their shame had they not. But yeah, yes. Uh, right. I, yeah. I I would be, you know, Doing something else with my life, I would never have known the passion for birds. But um, yeah, I, I think the whole idea is really cool. That you, the more expert you are, almost like when you have a language, there's you know you or you're learning a second language. You learning the third one is easier than learning that second language, just because you have more structure to sort of put yes. things in. Yeah, I th- I think that makes sense. I don't know. In their tests, they did some things that I'm like, you know, I don't know if that's how we identify birds because they were sort of showing people photos of birds and then later showing them photos and sort of saying, "Had you seen that before?" But we, at that point, you're not you're not remembering in the same way that you remember other stuff. Like it seems to trip a switch. You see, like a picture of a, you know. Prothonotary warbler, you just go, oh yeah, yes, you know, that's and then a that's in your warbler. head. Yeah. yeah, it's a prothonotary warbler. It's in your head, and you see that picture again. Even you know, even a week later, you'd be, yeah, I've seen that picture. I've seen that bird, or yeah. whatever. You, it, it's, it doesn't seem to me that it's quite memory. It's almost like a reflex, right? Recognition, um, yeah, yeah, recognition. Uh, so, so I, I had like some thoughts on that, but I, I do think they're right. The more bird stuff you know and identification and different species and um the more expert you are the easier it is to sort of learn more birds yeah um and i'm sure it's true with botany and and insects and and other right similar fields of study um even uh you know so often people ask us what we like about birding and and i think 
that is one of the things we like is it kind of it as you say it kind of gives you a structure for understanding things a filter and uh you know i think anybody whether you're a doctor or a mechanic or you know whatever um having that yeah. structure for how you think about things how you organize your brain space is real helpful yeah and and i think that if I remember right, Doctor Wing is uh, in a group that is trying to understand um, how to keep the brain healthy in older age, and mm-hmm. they're they're studying sort of things that you can do and practices to keep yourself sort of you know um, healthy in terms of of brain function. And I guess they're trying to tell people, hey, go birding. You know, it's uh, it's it's great for your your long-term memory and, and uh, all sorts of other things that are going on that might, let's say, become more, you know, weaken as, as you get older or, or, or what have you. Um, I think that's pretty neat. And um, that, that people are studying this apart from the fact that going out outdoors is so, so good for you. Otherwise, just in in terms of like decreasing stress levels. Yeah. Moving, moving around, getting sun and, getting out of your brain and getting outside. Uh, yeah. All yeah. good things. Yeah. I mean, who knew that this crazy thing that we picked up because we just liked it was going to be so good. <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, George, we could have, who knows, we, we could have been, you know, stock car fans instead of this. And uh, I'm sure there's a lot of fun to be had at, watching stock car races, but it's not nearly as broad as what you can get from being a birder. It's like just amazing. The, the level of, you know, puzzles, uh, and your brain kind of puzzles, how to sort of separate these things or where to find something sound, um, stress lowering, um, making friends, um, you know, uh, also, you know, just, uh, especially for younger people in particular, or actually anybody who's sort of starting at this, you, as you, you progress and then you learn more, you, you do get this sort of self-esteem boost, right? Like you, you feel like I'm getting somewhere, you know? Yeah. Yeah. You're making yeah. progress. You're increasing your knowledge. You're becoming more expert with time. Yeah. It's just yeah. a fantastic, but I, I mean, I'm not sure why I'm selling birding on a, to a bunch of birders listening here. Like <laughs> all, everybody's like shaking their head. Yeah. Yeah. But we should be selling birders, birding to uh, the stock car people. Yeah, you know? it's true. It's <laughs> Actually, true. let's start with lower hanging fruit than that. I think might be a little yeah. tough. I don't know. I don't know. Although that uh, Daytona, you can you can hear the Daytona races right from the uh, the big landfill where all the goals are. So you could do a little bit of both same day. Yeah, it's true. There you go. One stop shopping. Yeah, one stop shopping. Yeah. Um, well, you know, there's but, another article that came out. Um, and for folks that are maybe only, you know, for all our non-birding listeners out there, um, this could be uh, something for them to think about. There's an article that came out titled, Lazy Bird Watcher Would Rather Just Watch <laughs> Bird He's Already Seen. And we, yeah. can thank, we can thank the onion for that one. But it did make me the think onion. about, like, you know, you know, it, it's a great, and there, I don't know who's at the onion. That's the birder. I would love to know. Cause they clearly have somebody who's a birder there that they, they have these articles every now and then, um, that are, they're kind of spot on most of the time, you know, yeah. Yeah. um, you know, this guy's saying like, yeah, you know, I'd probably really like to see a bohemian waxwing, but you know, I've watched the black cap chickadee and the dark eyed junko probably a hundred times by now. What can I say? They're my favorites. <laughs> you know, they never get old. There's something you to be know, said for that. Kind of true. It is like I was thinking, you know, this is supposed to be sort of goofy and 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 you know, like that nobody's going to want to do that. But in fact, it's actually a really great way to bird to just like sort of, you know, watch whatever's in front of you and uh, and and enjoy it. You know, not really think about that fear of missing out because you're not seeing the uh, great gray owl that somebody's you know reported from wherever you know up in Minnesota or something in the winter. Instead, you're like, you know what? I'm having a good time here with my Cardinal. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, we've kind of talked like people don't like it. It seems it depends who you ask, but if you separate the terms birding from bird watching, um, everybody's got kind of their different take on this. Um, but I, to me, birding has always seemed like a more active thing. It's like you know, it's 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 active. You are you are birding. You are you are targeting certain things you want to see you're going to a specific area because there's something you want to see or because you want to see that area you know you're you're going out of your way to see birds uh where to me bird watching is more you know what this lazy bird watcher is doing and you know what more power to him i do it myself like i do both i have kind of passive and active um times where i'm like i'm just gonna hang out and see whatever i see and enjoy that and other times where i'm like Nope. You know what? I want to go try and see a Lacant sparrow or, you know, whatever. Um, and they both, they are, you know, I would say one is not better than the other. They both have their merits. It's just more yeah. about timing and what you're in the mood for. Yeah. You know, I think, I think there's a, an element of like the experienced birder versus the less experienced birder. The there's, it's like a, uh, you know, a filter, like, a, you know, like you're filtering through all these birds and your, your mesh size is different. So some birds are going to go by the, through the filter of a person who's not as experienced as an experienced person. So when anytime a real experienced birder is out, even just casually walking around with their dog or whatever, you could find a rare bird, you know, cause you're always sort of, so you're not actively bird birding like you're looking for your Lacan sparrow. But I mean, ironically, I found a Lacan sparrow once while I was walking my dog, you know, <laughs> near my house, which is a real rare bird. Yeah, that's um, not fair. You shouldn't be allowed yeah. to do that. Yeah. <laughs> and and uh and I th- I think there like you almost it's like it comes full circle, right? As as you get more adept at this, you can just be like not actively sort of be like i'm 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 looking for some real good stuff here but good stuff actually just happens because your your ability to parse through all that you hear see is is it's like i said like a filter mm-hmm. that you can suddenly go boom you know so it's like you 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 can just be you know uh bird watching and yet you're birding at the same time um, it's a little more different different when you're starting because you're, you're sort of almost like you have to go through so much thought, you know, to figure stuff out that sometimes, you know, um, yeah, I mean, I'm not, it's not getting at your point, but exactly, no. but it's interesting how it happens, you know. Yeah, you well, what you say, it, it reminds me of, I remember reading one of Pete Dunn's books might've been the feather quest, which was one I really enjoyed um, when it came out a long time ago. Great book. And um, I think it was in the feather quest where he said that as a birder, it's like, as you progress, it's like you're casting a net sort of out into the, into the, you know, the ether and you sort of, you're, you know, like the filter you're talking about and you sort of gather it in and you see what you have in that net, you know, it's a, it's not a real net, of course, but it's sort of a figurative visual oral, uh, audio net that you've, you Mm -hmm. you know, when you go outside and it seems like as you get more experienced, that net gets bigger and also finer, um, such Mm -hmm. that you catch more and more. Uh, and then perhaps as your senses, um, you know, as one gets older and older (laughs) and the, and the senses get maybe not quite as fine-tuned as they were uh yeah your net's got big holes in your, it. your net starts to get some holes in it you know that maybe uh you know some 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 fish or penguins have chewed through or what you know um mm. but uh yeah you get you know you get little you get little blind spots here and there and of course everybody has no matter who yeah. they are have have a blind spot or two but you know, um yeah at any rate i thought it was an interesting both yeah. that you and pete both kind of came up with a similar metaphor for uh, how one gathers information while out in the field. I, you know, I've thought too, like with with my my deafness that that came on, you know, all of a sudden. If I if I 
had not already been an experienced birder, uh, boy, I mean, this would have been really tough in terms of figuring out, you know, what birds sound like, where to look for them, you know, and so on with, with a, a restricted um, hearing capability. But having already had that sort of the background and, and, and now, you know, uh, I can actually function um, better than I thought I could have. And, and it's just maybe even gets at that root stuff and the, the miss, you know, Dr. Wing's article that you, you already have this foundation yeah, you've sort of got your neural network all set up. Yeah, yeah. So I've been able to sort of cope, you know, in in a way that obviously, you know, if I was next to you, you'd you'd hear things better than I would. But at least if you pointed it out, I'd be like, oh yeah, I know, you know, I I hear what you're, you know, I'd be able to focus and go, yeah, I, I get it, you know, I'm hearing that same thing, or at least I know what to listen for. Sure. So, uh, well, and I also you know, think there's. It, I liken it to sports sometimes too. And there, obviously there's like a huge myriad of, um, you know, no, no one person is like the next, you know, um, which is part of what makes it fun. Um, but like, you know, sometimes I like to think of myself as, as time rolls on as a, as, as like the Eagles have Darius Slay right now who might not be as fast as he used to be as a cornerback, but he's, he's a wily crafty veteran and, uh, you know, knows, knows some, some, some good routes and shortcuts and, and picks up on stuff that, that, uh, not everybody would. And, you know, you hope that, that, uh, you know, we, you know, it doesn't get easy as you get older, as all of us know. Um, so you, you know, having the, having the, the structure that we talked about, I think does help a lot. Yeah. Yeah. And, and in terms of, you know, I'm going to give a plug here for us uh, birders who've been doing this for a while and, and, you know, are, I don't want to say we're old, but we're getting older. <laughs> you know, is that if you, if you it's all matter perspective, a, yeah. right. Yeah, exactly. If you go out on a tour and you're, you know, you're, you're trying to choose which tour and, who to go with there's and you might go hey you know these young hotshots they really see everything and and you know and and all that but beware because the young hotshot has not been through it all and it's has not started to have a decline in their hearing and all that uh so we we would be more compassionate to the newer bird <laughs> that's coming out on a tour with us like oh yeah yeah you can't hear it yeah no uh, no problem let's uh it's uh Let's go there a little closer or whatever, and and uh, and you know happens. But uh, <laughs> these yeah. younger birders sort of seem to be like like, um, you know, <laughs> they 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 got it all going on and have energy out the wazoo, and you know we're sort of like you know I think it's time to stop birding. Let's go eat a bit of wine. <laughs> it's a different. <laughs> so the older birder guide might be a little bit more compassionate about you know whether you can see things or not and a little bit less uh intense so yeah. there a plug for uh, <laughs> for birding guys who've been doing this for a while yeah i i find too for i'm sure it's the same for you that it for me on on trips it depends there's certain things that i just get so up for that i'm like you know forget sleeping i need to do this and just go and other times and i'm you know and i'm like you know, I'll, I'll be better after some rest, um, for, uh, for some of these things. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, that's yeah. interesting. Yeah. But, uh, I, th I think I've mentioned in the past here that I'm not a big fan of owling that you know, I'd, <laughs> I'd rather, I'd, I'd rather be sleeping or enjoying sort of a, a post dinner, um, something to, you know, dessert or a drink or something, but it's like, oh no, we gotta go uh, eat quick, folks. We gotta go get this screech owl that looks just like the rest of them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there is that. Some of the night jars too probably fall into that category. Yeah. But I actually yeah. love seeing owls, but I just don't like owling. You know, yeah. like where, where there's a stress time component to it, where you yeah. you gotta like, this is your one chance to go look for you know, flammulated owl, and you're like, I. <laughs> yeah, it's funny. I've I I feel the same way, but as my interest 
in mammals seems to constantly be getting more expansive as time goes on. I do find myself being like, ah, you know, forget dinner. <laughs> let's just <laughs> let's just go till eleven or midnight. But uh, you know, obviously you got to pick your spots, right? You know, if if anybody out there works at one of these, um, inf- what is it? Uh, infrared nighttime vision scope the thermal scopes companies or something. Yeah, send one our way to review because. It'd be really interesting to sort of use this, um, particularly, you know, I think owling and even, you know, um, mammal finding, uh, just to sort of see how it works, you know. Um, No, it's the few times I've had them on trips. It's been so much fun. Uh, It's definitely one of these things I am soon to acquire somehow. Somehow, Um, yeah. Yeah, because it really... For mammals, especially, but but even for birds, like you know, finding finding roosting ant birds at night, you know, and <laughs> in the Amazonia, you know, just kind of blows your mind. You're like, this is right. not a, this is not a way I ever expected to see this bird. You know, is sleeping here, you know, a meter away from me, you know, right? Stuff like that. Yeah, hmm. pretty hey, amazing. Um, changing the subject on, so we did this pelagic trip yesterday and you know we often talk about pelagic trips because both of us do them often um but this was the first time we'd ever done a july trip here in morro bay usually we're here in september and then they uh the bird festival morro bay bird festival does them in the winter so it was kind of a uh an experiment and boy it was a really good trip you know we we saw a lot of diversity you know like Migrants coming back, including, you know, long-tailed Jaeger and um, a very early record of South Polar Skua. You know, I don't think there's been any, you know, July records around here ever. Um, there were Sabin's gulls, lots of them, red and redneck phalarope, some of them with a lot of breeding plumage. You know, so we, we had a, a great trip overall, but we had some rarities for here. We had two species of puffin. So tufted is already rare this far south, so it's a it's a, a good bird. But we also had horned puffin. Wow! Which, if people don't know, that should be in Alaska. Yeah, that's I mean, crazy. At this time of year, well, actually, all the time. Like we don't get them even in winter. You know, they just sort of show up every so often. Sometimes there's like a little invasion of them. This is sort of like a mini invasion year um, in California, but fantastic. Um, and um, I, you know, we, we were, it was one of the first birds we saw, you know, just a few miles from shore. Um, this guy, Mark up front, he, he, he says, Hey, I think there's a puffin or something. And I, I was like, what, you know, I mean, I, I, I was not even prepared to, to, to see that. And he got a photo of it. And then in the back, they're calling out puffin um, yet nothing looked like a puffin. I'm seeing these black and white, you know, usually our tufted puffins are real black, Black, you know, I see in my eyeballs sort of this black and white thing. Well, that can't be a puffin. It's got a lot of white on it. Then I'm like, oh my God, you know, it's a horn puffin. But <laughs> we joked later that, you know, okay, we got two of the three species. Actually, you know, if, if you want to, you know, there's the the other one that's sort of quasi puffin, the rhinoceros auklet. We did see that. Yeah. But um, uh, then it's like, how would you know if we were seeing really a horn puffin versus an Atlantic puffin, right? And in today's world, you sort of have to think about it. In the past, you just would always assume anything that had the white belly and the dark breastband was going to be a horn puffin. But now that we have, you know, a northern gannet um, on our side of the ocean and there's like a tufted puffin out in Maine, in Maine. right now, yeah. you know? Yeah, exactly. So things are kind of mixing up a little bit more. The ocean's a weirder and weird place all the time. Yeah. Yeah. And if, you know, people don't know where we're talking about, like look at the field guide and you'll see that, yeah, you know, these two things kind of look alike, but what we saw was not a full adult. It was like a, 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 maybe a two year old bird. So it, it didn't have the full bill color. And then if you don't have the bill color, how do you separate, Atlantic from, you know, horn puffin. And yeah, that starts I, um, to sound tricky. It's tricky, but 
I I had one of those situations of like, isn't burning wonderful yesterday? Because after after everything was done, and I'm you know at the you know on my phone computer just looking up images and thinking, okay, how do these birds differ as adults, and what might actually work in the youngsters? And to to go through and actually sort it all out and sort of see these birds in a way that I hadn't thought about them before was kind of fantastic. Like it, it, um, one thing I noticed is like they have a little dark eye post ocular line. And if you look at horned, that dark line goes all the way back and meets the dark of the back of the head hmm. and Atlantic. There's like a little, little gap. Right. And, so that was something. The other thing is, if you look at breeding Atlantics, they don't have black throats. They have like this dark, dark gray that comes up yeah. on the throat. And then horns actually black on the throat. And it kind of connects up with the breastband eventually, sort of like, or, you know, there's sort of a complicated sort of thing there. But um, it, and then I looked at this bird and it had the, you know, the long postocular and then also the real blackish throat, even as a, a youngster. And uh, I was thinking, wow, I mean, I wonder if who has ever had to like think about how to tell these two apart. Yeah. I mean, and, usually uh, there'd be no chance ever, no right? Chance. But you get some, you get a bird like you had yesterday that far out of range and in sort of a funky plumage, you got to start wondering. Start wondering. But I was so like, the the fun of going through that. I don't know if people get this, like of just sort of sorting through and being really like taking a bird apart bit by bit and looking at it and comparing and looking at imagery and then going, okay, I think I've, I've I have my field marks and um, I didn't have a, a book and I'm sure that the books don't help you with this kind of plumage. They, they would, you know, they wouldn't be sort of telling you how to separate the two. But um, it was almost like creating my own field marks on the go. Mm-hmm. That was really, really fun. Um, yeah, it's and, one thing uh, to do that in you know another part of the world. It's not often you find yourself trying to do that in North America. Right. But now I'm ready. Like I'm ready to find um, <laughs> Atlantic puffin. I mean, and you know that that net we were talking about, like. It does. There are some holes that, unless you actually actively work on them, yes, you just. I mean, here locally, I always have the Peruvian pelican back of my head, like mind of uh, back of my mind of like how if we saw one, would I be able to tell one apart? And I, I'm always looking for one. Yeah, and also black guillemot. We always assume that every guillemot we see is a pigeon guillemot. But how would I tell a black guillemot? So you have to have them in your head to be able to eventually find one. You know, like it's it's like uh, with you know luck. What's that? You know, luck, luck. happens to yeah. The luck favors the chance favors the prepared mind. Or the the, right. the one I often quote for instances like that is you got to be in the game to win the game. You know, like if you're yeah. not if you're not kind of keeping something in mind and kind of ready to look for it, then your chances of, of finding it go down a lot. Right. Right. So it's, uh, you, and it, I think this applies to any kind of birding, even sort of backyard birding. You, you have to have it in your, in your mind that a certain unusual thing could pop in. Um, and, uh, it, and it doesn't have to be super rare. It could just be unusual for your yard. Yeah. And if you're just used to everything that's the norm and you just assume that nothing unusual is going to pop in, you will never actually, or very rarely, will you find something unusual. You have to be kind of open to it yeah. and prepared for it, you know? Yeah. If you're not looking for something, your odds of finding it are pretty slim. Yeah. 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 No, it's uh, it was a good, fun trip. Everybody just, you know, I mean, it was a little choppy, but. We did have a great day out yesterday. And when you have also the county birders here, you know, in California, it's, and some people who've been on multiple trips over the years and they're getting a county bird and they're just super stoked. It just feels like, 
wow, you know, I mean, it, it, it really feels good to show people birds and then show them something they really wanted to see or didn't expect to see. It was one of those days. Yeah, I um, often say that, like, the, I used to say that the only thing more satisfying than seeing a new bird yourself was sharing, you know, getting to, to share a new bird with somebody as they're seeing it for the first time. But as time goes on, really, that's that's more often more rewarding. Um, yeah. Because, you know, yeah. that's what I think that's what's so great about birding. One of the things we've talked about before is that it is a shared experience. And uh, and speaking of shared birding experiences, Al, we're coming up on an hour here. Maybe oh, you want to tell the good folks what you got coming up. Yeah, well, I I'm I've got a more pelagic trips later on in the season. I'm going to South Africa on Monday wow. to do our our birds and wine. Yes, tasting some of the Cape region wines, birding there, mammal watching, and then heading to um, a Durban where we're going to a sort of uh, you know totally different habitat out there, and it's not wine region, but we take cases of wine with us and um and uh have uh more mammals and kind of more of the east east african avifauna you know pop in there it's just uh fantastic and i i uh i yeah i'm looking forward to pelagic trip down there in the cape and also we're gonna do one at durban oh nice so, uh, so that that's gonna be it's just everything it's got food you know Birds, mammals, good folks uh, traveling with me, and yeah, it's it's going to be it's going to be nice. But um, yeah, that's a great circuit, really great. And and of course, you know, we talked about progress in, in your birding and getting better at this. Um, I uh, go and check out my uh, uh, birding your best life site and see if you're interested in joining up. And uh, we do a lot of classes, courses, things on there and sort of how to. So it's, it's definitely a place where you can progress in your bird ID uh, skills, as well as kind of hang out with people um, in, in terms of, you know, the online. Yeah. Nice. That's what I'm up to. Nice. Excellent. Excellent. What are you up to? What are you doing? Yeah. Heading out for Columbia here shortly. Uh, going to the Central Andes. Nice uh, trip I think I've talked about before. Ant pittas, hummingbirds should be a great time. Got a great group of folks. Really looking forward to traveling with them. And uh, yeah, we just uh, I'm about to send out some more information on New Hillstar stuff. Our, our first prairies tour just sold out yesterday. So we're going to offer a second one. Nice. And uh, yeah, our, our Colorado Best of Summer Birding is up. And also... Columbia yes. in February next year. Life list event. Me, Molly Brown, with the Birders Show, Chris Bell, and a whole bunch of Colombian birders. Uh, we're going to go down for the uh, the bird fair, the Columbia Bird Fair, which is in Cali, the town of Cali, which is a big town and old town, like over four hundred years old. Going back to Cali, yeah, yeah, going back to Cali. Cow, and then all, right before that, we're going to we we have an event, um, five nights Manizales, um, in the in the in the Central Andes. There again, looking same kind of stuff I'm going for now: hummingbirds, ant pittas. So keep an eye out for that. We'll be sharing that on social media in Life List real soon. If if uh, not by the time you're hearing this, and um, yeah, should be a great time uh, working with. All our friends in Colombia, Molly and I are super excited. Alvaro, you are busy elsewhere at the time, um, unfortunately. Right. But uh, but I'm sure you'll tell folks about that bit of travel you've got coming up as well. Uh, yeah, yeah. Eventually, yeah. I'm. Uh, it. Where am I that? <laughs> I think you're. In, think. I think you're in Chile, isn't? It? I think it's. Uh, yeah, Chile that's right. Yeah. That's right. I had, I had to do two. Two chili trips, sort of a little, not quite back to back, but sort of to catch up um, because of COVID. You know, we didn't do a trip for multiple years. So there's been sort of some uh, pent up uh, um, requests for that trip. So we're, yeah, that's right. Usually it's in, you know, we're doing the sort of October 
version to the spring, but we're doing uh, another one in the mid midsummer, which is yeah. January. Yeah. Should be, should be fun. I mean, uh, I, I wish I could go to the axis of coffee. Uh, That's right. There. That's right. We talked about, yeah. <laughs> you, you, you got to listen to the previous uh, podcast to understand that reference. But um, yes. And yeah, it's such a great part of the world and so many great um, birds, but also uh, lots of birding activity, you know, like lots of people out there who are, getting in on this birding thing in Colombia. Yeah. And uh, no, it's going to be great. Like it's, yeah. it's really going to be a, like a birding party, you know, like in the Colombians, they know how to have a good time. Like, you know, we'll, we'll be having a lot of good food and uh, you know, they got some micro brews and it's just a fun time, you know? Um, yeah. So really looking forward to that. Should be a great time. Hope folks will check it out. Um, but yeah, man, I think it's time for us to scoot. Um, That's right. Yeah. Been, um, we always, you know, we, we started this thinking like, are we, do we have any enough to talk about here? We always fill up. We actually always go past the time. Yeah. We're a couple <laughs> chatty Cathy's. I think we figured that out. Yeah, I know. Boy. I mean, if you, and again, if you're still listening to this hats off to you, you know, I mean, you're, like I said, you're the true fans. If you put up with us for over an hour. <laughs> um, That's right. <laughs> Yeah, well, thanks, everybody, for listening. We will be back real soon. Thanks, everybody. Thanks, Al. Have a good time in South Africa, man. Yeah, thanks, uh, everybody. Like, yeah, and you in Colombia. Let's uh, compare notes in a, in, a, in a little bit and, uh, yeah, see what we saw. All right. Thanks to producer Molly Brown and thanks to Coa Sport Optics as well. We will be back again soon. Thanks, everybody. Take care. Take care.